All right, Andrew, make your way up here. This, this message this morning is so incredibly awesome. It's on culture. And I had one of those weeks, just so you know, and this was providential and, and work. I'm, be, I'm doing two things. I'm being intentional and in raising up spiritual sons in the house. Can you all say amen to that? Amen. And I'm also being intentional in knowing uh, the seasons of life. You know, my mother-in-law fell this week at home, landed right on her nose, about ripped her nose off. She had to have plastic surgery. They took her in for surgery for her nose, and she nearly died on the, on the table because her heart started going crazy. Um, and we've had, you know, all kinds of stuff. It ended with yesterday with uh, uh, Ronnie and Kara had uh, Ronald Dean Johnson the fourth yesterday, which is exciting. But um, but I share I share all of this because that's a normal week. You got good and bad and tough and rejoicing, and it's all mixed together. And that's why we need each other, and we need an environment here, a culture here that knows how to love well and how to disciple well. And Pastor Andrew's going to talk about that. So give him a warm, warm welcome this morning. <laughs> love you. Let me get out of your way here. I am super excited today to talk about one of my favorite topics, culture. You know, culture is one of those things that we talk about all the time, pop culture, counterculture, but we rarely really articulate what culture means. So before we get to the culture of a discipleship-driven church, I want to first talk about culture. My definition of culture, I want to kind of explain the power of culture, uh, the impact of culture that has on us. So this is my definition of culture. It's pretty simple. A culture is simply a reflection of what you value. I stole that from somebody else. Um, but I really like it. A culture is simply a reflection of what you really value. Okay. And out of this value comes these intangible, intangible factors that kind of corrals everyone towards this value. Okay. So I get an example of a tangible culture would be, uh, remember when you go to school back in middle school or even high school, you see posters on the wall, right? Poster says work hard or excellence or integrity. Remember all that stuff? You look at it, you're like, that's kind of cheesy. Well, what that really is, is it's an attempt for the teacher to try to implement culture, okay, to try to teach culture. And there, there are also intangible parts of culture such as expectations. Certain behaviors are rewarded. Other behaviors are shunned. Those, are ex- those expectations are part of culture. I think the best way to articulate what culture looks like is if you imagine culture is like a rushing river. Okay, it's all taking everything in the river in a certain direction. Okay, it's the direction of whatever you value. And if you just imagine this river, mostly everything is going towards downstream, towards the direction that the rivers flow in. Now, every once in a while, you have somebody who is trying to swim upstream or a fish swimming upstream, right? Now, depending on the flow of the water... Going upstream will be very difficult. And that's what we call countercultural. Going upstream in a culture, okay, sometimes be very difficult because if you're standing still, culture is taking you downstream. You have a mental picture of what that looks like? That's what culture is. Now, I want to give you an example of some, the power of culture, the only way I know how, uh, through my own lens, through my own experience. You have your own cultural experience. I want to kind of explain my own cultural experience. Um, so as you notice, I am Asian-American, more specifically Chinese-American. Yes, I am, <laughs> believe it or not. 
a little darker than your, you know, typical Northwest Indiana. Um, but that's to say there's some stereotypes that came with being Asian American. I'll share a little story to illustrate that. Uh, I think I was back in middle school or, or it might be elementary school. I was talking with a friend about upcoming test. And this test was just going to be terrible. It was notorious. We're complaining to each other. Yeah, it's going to be tests. It's going to be hard. And he concluded the conversation by saying something along the lines of, yeah, this test is going to be terrible. We all know it. But you're going to do great. You're Chinese. You'll be fine. <laughs> you guys do great at these tests. And he just kind of walks away. Now, he was not being condescending at all. I knew he was a good friend of mine. He was not making fun of me. He wasn't even trying to be funny. He was simply making a statement. And I was thinking, wow, he literally thinks like every Chinese kid, when, when they were born, they were giving like an A-plus pass. <laughs> and you just wave at your tests. You don't have to take it. Bam, you get 100%. And you move on. The only problem is I never got one. <laughs> and I'm not super excited about this test. Now, as I got a little older, I started to realize certain cultural stereotypes are actually based on reality, are actually based on the truth. I'm not trying to offend any Asian Americans in here, all three of people who are listening, <laughs> including my mom, maybe, and my wife. But the truth is, certain this, in, in this case, this stereotype is kind of true. I mean, most Asian Americans I know at least graduated college, at the very least. Now, many of them went to the best colleges. I'll just use my own family as, as an example. I am not joking. I'm not kidding. I'm talking my cousins, okay, not myself, my cousins. I probably have 15 cousins or so, both sides. Pretty much every single one of them scored a perfect score on the SAT. Perfect. Not like close to perfect, actual perfect scores. You know, you go through the college list, MIT, Caltech, Harvard, Yale, whatever it is. The only person who did not score a perfect score on the SAT is this guy. <laughs> and I am not insecure about that. It took me about 30 years, but I'm getting over it. Um, but, you know, at some point I look back onto this culture phenomenon, and I'm thinking, is it true that just all of them were given that smart pass? They just got the smart gene when they were born? Well, since I grew up with them, I can say that is not the case at all. That is not true. So what caused this phenomenon? You realize this is not about talent. It's about culture. Culture trumps talent any day. I would take good culture over a talented person any day. That is the power of culture. So this is what it looks like. Again, culture is a reflection of what you value, right? Well, guess what? Most Asian Americans value. They come from a difficult nation that's not as prosperous or free as the United States. So they come to the prosperity of America, and they say, what? We're going to value education. So they start implementing culture, expectations, guidelines, protocols to reinforce the river to flow towards education. And what does that look like practically? It looks like something like this. For example, part of the expectation is when you come home from school, you do your homework first. You don't turn on the TV. You don't go out and play with your friends. You don't get on your phone. You don't even do extracurricular activities or play sports. You do your homework first. That includes studying for the test on Friday, even though it's Monday. That's part of the expectation. Part of the expectation is also this. Check this out. You start studying for the SATs, practice tests, when you're in, like, sixth grade. Not even joking. In the summertime, 
we're all hanging out, summer vacation. I'm with my cousins. We're at my aunt's house. I'm playing video games. My cousin's there working on a math worksheet. And I'm there making fun of them. Well, guess who got the perfect score on the SAT? <laughs> I'm getting over it. I'm still getting over it. <laughs> it's tough when everyone gets a perfect score because even if you come close, it's not the same. And yeah, I didn't even come close. Uh, anyways, here's another expectation. When you get your report card, if you get a B, you know what a B stands for? <laughs> it stands for you better get an A next time. And if you get an A, that means average. The A, B, honor roll means nothing to Asian Americans. B, A, what is that? If you want to impress me, come home with a straight A plus, perfection. That is the value. I'm not saying it's good or bad. There's some good stuff to come from it. There's some bad stuff that came from it. I'm just saying that's the power of culture. See, the funny thing is my parents, who are ministers and pastors, didn't even care about grades. I don't remember my parents ever coming to me and saying, hey, you need to get straight A's or straight A plus or even care. It was the culture I lived in that gave me those expectations. My parents cared that I went to church on Sunday and worship and serve the Lord. They didn't care about my grades. I felt it from the culture around me. That's the power of culture. See, looking back, growing up that culture, I didn't even know that was, that was the power the impact culture had on me. I didn't even know. It wasn't until I came to Northwest Indiana and I'm like, whoa, there's a completely different culture here. And you, guys, you guys have your own story about culture. But my point is, let's remember what culture is. Culture is simply a reflection of what you value. So if you live in a terrible culture, a miserable culture, you want to change your culture, what do you do? You got to go back to the drawing board. You got to look at what is our value. And we might need to change these values to correct our culture. So to, to, to talk about a discipleship-making culture at your local church, we need to first like, look at what do we truly value here. And today is kind of a team project, group project. We're all working together. We want to grow some culture together. You guys ready for that? Let's, let's make some cool culture. Let's make some discipleship-driven culture. And we're going to start by talking about three things we truly value. And I want to emphasize value because these three things, as I talk about it, you're going to say, well, I know that. I've heard about this. It's in the Bible. I preach about it. We talked about it, blah, blah, blah. My point is not just to acknowledge it, but to truly value it. Value it like an Asian American value education. That's the standard here, okay? So let's start. The first thing that we need to value is this. We need to value that every single one of us has a powerful, impactful, God-ordained role to play in the local church. Now, again, I'm sure you've heard this before, but do we truly believe it? Do we really look at each other? I mean, just look to the person to your left real quick, to your left. It's not too weird. Just look, look at me on the left. Look at the person to your right. Turn around the other side. Your right to the other side. My right. It's not your right. Do we really look at each other through those lens? Like you have a powerful role to play in the kingdom of God. And guess what? If you're not playing this role, our, our family, our body will not be as healthy. Will not be as full. Do we really have those expectations? You know, it's interesting. The, the church is not, it's described by the Bible not as a corporation or organization, but a body. I looked it up, of the 37 and a half trillion cells in your body, there's not one cell that sits around 
and just kind of cheer other cells on. Good job, white blood cell. I see you going after those viruses. Hey, look, those, those liver cells, break down those toxins. You're doing a great job. Every single one of, of your 37.5 trillion cells is proactively serving, working, doing something powerful. That's how we should be. But here, but let's be super real here. You come to church on Sunday, you look at 100 other people with you, and you're thinking, who am I really? Do I really even matter? If what I do really matter, does it even matter if I show up? If Pastor Ron comes up here and says, here's a need, a lot of times we're thinking, well, someone else is going to fill this need. I'm just one person. Why does it even matter? You know, life is the tension a lot of times between seeing the big picture and seeing the details. And for me, my personality, I tend to see the big picture. I struggle with seeing the individual. I ask those questions all the time for myself. Does it really even matter? There's there's billions of people on the earth. Does it even matter? And the Lord helped me out with this. He showed me this passage in Matthew 18. I was listening to a podcast, and and the pastor was preaching about this. He says, you guys know the story. Jesus said, I'm paraphrasing, uh, there's a hundred sheep. A shepherd has a hundred sheep. And one goes astray. What will he do? Won't he leave the night and eye? We're just saying about this. And go after the one. And when he finds the one, he brings him back and he's celebrating. He is rejoicing. And I heard the story and my heart ached. And I said to the Lord, I said, Jesus, let me be real with you. Honestly, if I had 99 sheep that did what they're supposed to do, they obeyed, they didn't wander off, and one knucklehead wandered off, I don't know if I'm going to go lead the 99 unguarded, no one to watch him, to go after the one. I honest, I'm, I'm being honest. I don't know if I would do that. I don't know if I can do that. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the cost-benefit analysis. 99 versus the one. Is it just me who struggle with that? Well, that's the, that's the thing. And the Lord starts sharing this with me. He said, you will absolutely go after the one if... The one who wander off is your son or is your daughter. It's, it's so interesting because God just shattered my cost-benefit analysis <laughs> with the father's heart. Just destroyed it. And, and he's absolutely right. If it's my son that wander off, I will leave 99 million to go after the one. If it's my daughter, I will leave the whole world to go after him. And this is what dawned upon me. The one... Might not be my son or my daughter. The one is somebody's son, someone's daughter. And moreover, the one is God's son, it's God's daughter. Man, that just gave me such clarity on how, when it's your family, Jesus will lead the 99. It's not a one, it's the one. It's not a role you're supposed to play, it's the role you're supposed to play. It's the calling. We need to have that perspective when we look at each and every person in our church body. We need to value that perspective. So what does that mean practically? There needs to be an empowerment culture at Living Stones when everyone's asking themselves the question, how can we serve? How can we solve the problem? How can we meet the need? How can we fulfill this qualification? If we're not there, how can I be equipped and trained to get there? When there's a need that comes up in the body of Christ, we shouldn't be thinking, oh, someone so-and-so is going to fulfill that. Oh, they always take care of this. We're thinking, how can I take care of it? Because we realize every single one of us has a powerful need. 
to fulfill. We all need to have the eyes of ownership. That should be our expectation. You know, the best way I can think about the eyes of ownership is I went to visit my buddy, um, Ryan, who used to be a healthcare um, facility administrator um, in Maryville several years ago. I went to visit him, and he took me a tour of the building. It took forever. Because everywhere he walked, he saw something wrong. He saw a piece of trash he had to go pick it up and throw away. He saw something around with the rugs, like a bubble in the rugs. He had to pull it to make sure no one trips on it. And I remember thinking to myself, that piece of trash, probably 100 people has passed, by, passed that by all day long. And no one even had the eyes to see it to go pick up and throw away. That bubble, hundreds of people have passed by that. But no one saw that. Because I didn't even see it. But Ryan saw that because he had an ownership mentality. We all need to have that ownership mentality when it comes to the needs of the body of Christ. To say, hey, I want to own it. Why? Because I value the fact that there's a unique role for me to play in the body of Christ. When we all understand that there is that unique role and vision and value for every single one of us to play, every single one, we will create a vacuum for discipleship. Because everyone knows that I need to be growing, I need to be developing to get there. On the other hand, everyone says, hey, pastors got it. We'll let the pastors do it. We'll let the leaders, the ministers do it. Nothing to do with us. There will be no need for discipleship. There's no need for growth, right? So to create that vacuum, we need to first value that every single one of us has a unique role to play for us to be truly healthy and truly alive. The second thing we need to value, we already touched on this, is we need to value, specifically, we need to value growth, personal growth. Now, the main reason we need to value growth is because we're supposed to be more like Jesus day after day after day, right? Every day. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So all of us who value had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord Jesus, who is the Spirit, make us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. You see, inertia says stay the same. Don't change. Be comfortable. There's no need to change. We need to cultivate a culture of momentum and change. We should always be learning, growing, studying, trying new things, making new mistakes. So what is the cultural reflection of this? What does that look like practically? Well, first of all, I believe us as leaders and pastors should be modeling this. You know, Pastor Ron challenged um, many of you several months ago to say, hey, why don't you read a book a month, right? You guys remember that? Well, the funny thing is Pastor Ron himself is literally reading, I'm not even joking, like 10 books a month, 11, 15, 25, conservative estimate. You go into his office when he's working, okay? A lot of times you guys see him not in the mix of him working. I will budget him all the time. Hey, Pastor Ron, I have something to ask you. He's got like 10 books open at the same time. He's like, he's like a cyborg just scanning this book, this book, this book, this book. No joke. He's always like, hey, Andrew, you need to read this book, this book. I'm thinking, Pastor, I have about 20 books on the docket from you that I need to read. Okay, someone else, Steve, was Steve. he's like, you need to be reading the John Piper book. I'm like, man, I'm like, that's of the 10 books I'm trying to, trying to get caught up on. But see, he's creating a culture of learning and growing. He's sucking me into it. You see that process? See, my secret weapon is actually podcast because I can do it when I'm working out, when I'm cutting grass, and kind of condense everything. But you know what? I made a goal for myself to listen to three podcasts a week, at least three. Discipline because I want to learn. I want to grow. This should be the expectation of our culture, that we go to each other and we can ask each other this question. 
what book are you reading? And not get like a blank stare on their face. Or how about this? What is God teaching you? And not get a weird look. Or how about this? What skill are you learning? What skill are you honing? What are you proactively learning today? How are you growing today? That should be a normal conversation. That should be part of the expectation we have for each other and not be weird. When I see Tim, I should be like, Tim, what are three things you're working on this week or this month? It shouldn't be weird. He should be like, well, the Lord's teaching me this and this and this. That should become part of our culture. But it's not just book knowledge. It's not just knowledge. It needs to be changing our character. It turns out, I don't even know this. Here's a revelation for you guys. It turns out that when you become ordained as a pastor, they don't pass out like a special halo that increases like all your spirituality by 50%. Like, I'm a pastor now, bam, I just become super like spiritual. The amount of character I had before I was ordained stayed the same after I was ordained. And I need to grow. You know, I just had a conversation with my wife this past week. Um, either this week or last week. Um, see, I already forget things. But she came up to me with courageously and basically shared with me certain things I've dropped the ball on. I've been too harsh on my kids and how I speak to them. Uh, sometimes when I spend time with my wife, I tune her out. I zone out. My mind's somewhere else. I'm with her, but my mind's somewhere else. Among other things, and this is what I share with her. I said, babe, can you help me? Can you help me grow? When I'm doing these things, I don't even know if I'm doing these things. Okay? If you tell me a week later, I'm like, I'm like a puppy. Like, at that point, I don't even know what I messed up on. Tell me at that moment or at least five minutes afterwards to say, hey, babe, you're doing this because I need help. And I'll be honest again. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I don't, my favorite thing in the world is not my wife stopping my track and say, hey, you're doing this again. <laughs> I don't love it. I don't love it. I'll be honest. I don't love my wife calling me out and say, you're not acting very pastoral right now. Or you got some character issues than this you're working on right now. I don't love it. But I invite her to give me feedback. I invite her to say, correct me. Why? Because there's a culture to grow, to be different. By my wife's own confession, you can ask her. She's an overflow because I got sick kids. I am a different man than I was five years ago. Not, my, by, not by my own calculation, by her calculation. And I have a vision that the 2020 Andrew Main is going to look back at the 2019 Andrew and say, dude, I can't believe you're still doing that. Seriously. And I have a vision for a 2025 Andrew, looking back at a 2020 Andrew and says, come on, man, get up. You can do, the, you can do better. There should be an expectation of growth. See, we need to create a culture in which we cultivate that. Not in shame or guilt or legalism, but in terms of spurring each other on and encouraging each other and say, hey, let's grow. Let's be real. When we value personal growth, we will create a vacuum for discipleship. You know how? It's because discipleship is God-ordained way for us to grow. If there is a desire of valuing of growth, personal spiritual growth in our body, in our culture, in who we are, man, everyone will be pursuing discipleship. Everyone in our context will want to be part of discipleship. That's the best way to grow. Make sense so far? First thing we need to value is that everybody, every single one, big or small, young or old, doesn't matter, has a role to play. And number two is we need to truly not just like it, not just think it's good, not just acknowledge it. We need to treasure personal growth.
The third thing, I'm wrapping up already, the third thing we need to value is we need to value learning from our mistakes. And this one is super tough for me because you know what? I grew up in a culture that did not value mistakes. I grew up in a culture in which mistakes are seen as failures. Now stay with me here. Mistakes are failures which leads to shame, which leads to fear, which leads to paralysis. So because of my mistake, I jump all the way to paralysis. There's many things I should do, I should pursue, but because of one mistake I made, I never got there. That was my culture growing up. I'll be real. You know, just recently I made a mistake, one of many, as a pastor, in the context of a pastor. It wasn't a moral failure. Uh, it wasn't nothing malicious. I made a mistake because I was inexperienced and sometimes I'm dumb. So I made a mistake. And, you know, the first thought that came to my mind was, oh, you were never called to be a pastor in the first place. That was the first thought that came to me. Now, I didn't follow through with that thought. I knew that was not from God. However, I, I said to myself, what is wrong with you? Why are you so biased? Why are you so allergic to mistake? So I went to the Lord. I said, Lord, teach me. Show me deeply about my value, how I see mistakes. So God took me, gave me a picture. He showed me. My young, I have young kids. He showed me my little son or daughter as they're learning how to walk. You know how it is when you're, when you're a baby learning how to walk, you're trying to balance yourself, right? So your butt's sticking out, and you're trying to find your balance, and you kind of wallow forward a couple steps, and then the third step, you trip and fall. And the parent comes and scoops him up and says, hey, great job, come do it again. You know, that's the scenario. He, that's the scenario he gave me. He said to me, when your son trips or falls, do you go, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever try to walk again. Do you ever say that to your 10-month-old son? Or do you ever say, what's wrong with you? Get up. Get up. No, I use that voice because that's the voice I hear in my head when I make a mistake. And the Lord said, when your son trips and falls, if he says to himself, he said, I'm never gonna, I'm, I was never meant to walk. I'm a crawler. That's my destiny. That's my identity. I'm never, I'm just, that's not me. I tripped once, gave it my shot, I'm just not going to do it again. Sorry, Dad, I'm going to be a crawler for life. Just FYI. Everyone's walking to school, I'm going to be crawling to school. You better give me a cart. You know, everyone's walking to their car to go to work, I'm going to be crawling to my car. What would you do as a father? You say, son, come on, man, get up. Get up, you can do this. Tripped once, you can do this. And when the Lord said to me, I said... God, I get where you're coming from, but you're talking about babies learning how to walk. I'm a pastor. Okay, this is different. And God said, it is not different. You are both learning how to walk. You are both learning how. There's nothing like a dose of humility to give you clarity, to see what God sees. See, the, the issue is how do we see our mistakes Thomas Edison, I don't agree with everything he said, but he said something that was kind of cool. As an inventor, he made a thousand unsuccessful attempts at inventing the light bulb. And when the reporter approached him and said, how did it feel to fail a thousand times? This is what he said. He says, I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention with a thousand steps. 
See, this is about your perspective. This really is about your perspective. I grew up in a culture in which I saw my mistake as my failure, full of shame. But we need to create a culture that sees our mistake as our teacher. I grew up in a culture that saw hardship as hazards, as walls. But we need to create a culture that sees hazard as our coaches or hardship as our coaches. Now, I want to clarify, I am not talking about unrepentant sins that we keep going back to with never a desire to change. I am talking about mistakes we make as we're pursuing after Jesus, trying to be more and more like Jesus. We're trying to serve each other, and we make those mistakes. When we fall, what happens? This is what it looks like when we have a culture that embraces the mistakes that we learn and learn from it. We can create true authenticity. See, what happens is we spend so much energy trying to convince each other that we never make mistakes, that we're perfect. We should take that energy and focus on growing ourselves instead. Does that make sense? And it gives us true intimacy because we can embrace and say, yeah, I screwed up. I messed up. I learned from this. Guess what? You can probably learn from my mistake too and be open about this. I read about a pastor. He pastors a big church in Texas. He says, he has a, when he's, one of his team members makes a mistake, he calls everyone together and says, hey, share your mistake in front of everyone. Not to shame the person so that everyone can learn from this mistake. You see that perspective toward mistakes? That was definitely not my culture growing up. But here's another thing. It's beyond just learning from our mistakes. And I want to be super honest again. Give me five more minutes to be super honest. Um, because of my bias against mistakes, because I grew up in the culture that saw mistakes in such a negative light, I very easily write people off. I used to very easily write people off because of their mistakes. And by that, I mean I would disqualify. Now, I would not verbally say it with my mouth, but emotionally and mentally, I would disqualify people for God's service or serving God because of their mistakes. Just being real. In fact, that's something I do for myself. Uh, my, my, my own father is a, uh, he's a pastor, and he's super pastoral. He's one of the most patient men I've ever met, one of the most caring and loving men I've ever been, I've ever met. And, and here's the thing, I'm not wired quite like that. Um, that was not my disposition growing up. And uh, early in my ministry, back in college days or so, uh, I remember one time I was harsh with someone. I was impatient with somebody. And when the mistake was pointed out to me, I said to myself, you will never be a pastor or you can never be a pastor because I compared myself to my father. And because of my mistake, I would easily write myself off as I write other people off. And the Lord showed me this passage from Acts 3. And, and I read Acts, Acts 3 many times, but this time it really, really killed it for me. Um, so go to Acts 3 in your Bible if you can or it's on the screen. The context of this is that uh, this is just after Pentecost. So Peter just, the Holy Spirit just fell and Peter just spoke to a bunch of people. And now in Acts 3, he went, he's going to the temple with um, other apostles and he saw a crippled man. He healed the crippled man. And everyone saw the healing of Jesus and they all came. And Peter got an opportunity to share a message. And check out what he said. He said, people of Israel, what is so surprising about this? Why stare at us as though we have made this man walk by our own power or godliness? 
Okay, then he starts preaching the gospel. For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, who have brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate. Despite Pilate's decision to release him, you rejected the holy righteous one and instead demand the release of a murderer. So he started really preaching. He started laying it in. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witness of this fact. But then he changes the tone. In verse 17, he says, friends, I realize what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so your sins might be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. He will again send you Jesus. He will appoint a Messiah. This is what's incredible to me because on my list, I don't actually have a list, but if I actually had the list of the, the top sins, the top things to be disqualified for, Killing Jesus, like physically killing Jesus, like nailing him to the cross, like piercing his side, like mocking him, laughing at him, throwing things at him, spitting on him. That would be on top of my list, wouldn't it, for you? If you had the list. But look at what Peter is saying. He's saying from God's perspective, you did it out of ignorance. You didn't know what you are doing. You made a mistake. You're maturing. In fact, God used you for his purpose. To God, you are lost kids stumbling around. You don't know what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right. And you fell. You tripped and you fell. And God's saying, I'm inviting you now to get up. Get up again. And learn from your mistake. So that time of refreshing will come and heal you. This is incredible. This is crazy to me. I am more offended by the men who killed Jesus, than God is. But then I remember the words of Jesus on the cross. Do you guys remember what he said when he was on the cross? See, the most of the time when I read what he said, when he's praying on the cross, I'm thinking, he's just saying that, because, I mean, just a cool thing to say. I never really saw that as a prayer. But he said to his father, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. See, if God would not disqualify those who killed Jesus... Who are we to ever disqualify anyone? Who are we to ever disqualify ourselves because of our mistakes? See, we don't know each other's stories. We don't know people's story. We don't know what they come from, where they come from. We don't know their parentage. We don't know if they had a bad day that morning. We don't know if their kids might be sick or they might be struggling with some health issues. We don't know the hurts and wounds that they encounter. We don't know people's story. And I just want to speak for myself. There are many people who I have emotionally written off. I have disqualified for the faith because of my own heart. God saw them as babies learning how to walk. And that requires repentance on my end. Repentance on my heart. So how about we create a culture in which we are not shamed about our mistake we're not traumatized from our mistake. We're not scared of making new ones. But instead, we wear our mistakes on our hearts, not as a badge of honor for our mistakes, but as a badge of honor for God's faithfulness. And also as a tool for discipleship. Now, if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to go on one of our encounters. 
Because you realize real quickly that the leadership here at Living Stones are no stranger to mistake. Right, Pastor? We may all share our mistakes. You hear details on the encounter. But you also realize that none of us has been disqualified for it. Instead, we have turned our mistakes into enemies against the en- weapons against the enemy. And furthermore, as tools for discipleship. If you don't believe me, go on the encounter, I dare you. So how do you guys feel about creating that type of culture here at Living Stones? Amen? We need to, we can't just say it. We need to truly value it. We need to truly value that every single one of us has a role to play. We need to truly value that every single one of us value growth. We need to love growth, value growth in each other. And we need to, each one of us, value, let's learn from our mistakes. Let's have a culture that encourages discipleship. So let's all stand up. Let's everyone stand up. I want to pray for us, but I also want to give an invitation for every single one of you who might have been written off, who have, might have been disqualified by maybe a Christian brother or sister or someone in leadership, by your parents, and probably more deadly than anything else, you've been written off by yourself. I want to tell you, just like the song they're playing right now, to you, when you're a family, and you are, and God knows your heart, and you're here today, or you're listening on this podcast or on the YouTube, God sees you, and he, you are the one that he goes after. He leads the 99 and goes after. And we need to truly believe that, and I truly believe that. If that's you, I invite you to come down talk with our pastors and elders. We just want to share that message with you. We want to let you know that God has not forsaken you. You have not been disqualified. And Jesus looks at the 99. He's saying, I'm leading 99. I'm leading the 99 million because you are not a one. You are the one. You are my family. And I'm coming after you. If that's you, I encourage you to come down and pray with one of us. But I want to pray for our church that we embody the culture of discipleship. And Father, we just ask for something even supernatural right now. That this is beyond just a mental exercise, a knowledge-based thing. That culture transcends all that. We need to help change our heart, transform our hearts to value these things. Help us see what you see and care about what you care. Though you see every single one of us with such unique value and calling and preciousness. That you value, you want all of us to value growth and transformation. We want to be more like you every day. That we can truly see the heart of the Father who sees a little son or daughter learning how to walk. And we don't rebuke him. We don't chew him out. We pick him and say, hey, son or daughter, let's try this again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.